This is Graham Wardle. Mark Friesen. This is Marty Up North. This is Alex Craner. I'm Rupa Subramania. This is Tom Luongo, and you're listening to the Sean Newman Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, folks. Happy Thursday. How's everybody doing today? Before we get on to today's show, how about we start with Silver Gold Bull, North America's premier precious metals dealer with state-of-the-art distribution centers in Calgary and Las Vegas. They ensure fast, fully insured, discreet shipping right to your doorstep and offer a diverse set of services, including buyback, wholesale, registered savings, IRA accounts, RRSP, and TFSA, as well as storage and refining solutions trust silver gold bull to elevate your precious metals investment journey with unrivaled expertise and unparalleled convenience your prosperity and security are top priority making silver gold bull the go-to choice for all your precious metal needs silvergoldbull.ca also alan huco Cactus Environmental has been in the business for almost 30 years, providing environmental consulting assessment and monitoring for pre-construction, construction, reclamation, and spills. Cactus Environmental is a local supplier for e M surveys. That's electromagnetic as well as phase ones, twos, and threes. You can get a hold of them at 306-821-7541 or um, email them at Allen. That's A double l e n dot cactus c a c t u s at sasktel.net and if you're uh, in the mood to see a little bonus a little exclusive content that won't be on the podcast uh, of course today with linda you can go to substack that's in the show notes if you got thoughts on today's episode hit me up uh, in the text line which is also in the show notes, and I uh, look forward to hearing what you folks have to say. Now, let's get on to the tale of the tape brought to you by Hancock Petroleum. For the past 80 years, they've been an industry leader in bulk fuels, lubricants, methanol, and chemicals, delivering to your firm, commercial or oil field locations. For more information, visit them at hancockpetroleum.ca. She's a former Canadian track and field champion and an NCAA All-American. She has spent 25 years as a sports performance professional coach in Edmonton, teaching fundamental biomotor skills to athletes from beginner to elite in over 15 sports. I'm talking about Linda Blade. So buckle up. Here we go. Welcome to the Sean Newman Podcast. Today I'm joined by Linda Blade. So first off, thank you for making the drive to Lloydminster. Well, you're welcome. Thank you for having me, Sean. Well, I I, um, I was telling you I interviewed April Hutchinson, and in that she mentioned this lady named Linda Blade, and I'm like, well, who is that? And then she started talking about you, and I'm like, oh, my God. Like, you're, like, in my back door. You know, as Canada right goes, you're, you're right there. I'm like, I need to have this lady uh, come to Lloydminster and, and, and sit across from me yeah. and, and, and tell me a little bit about her story. Yeah. And so that's where I want to start sure. because there's going to be – I'm certainly there's going to be people like like I was saying to you, I reached out to you and it was like the next day my brother walked in. He's like, ah, one of the ladies gave me this book you need to read. And it was your book. And I'm like, oh, that's a weird coinkadink, you know, <laughs> um, in saying all that, uh, there's going to be a lot of us, including uh, myself until I picked up your book and started reading it that don't know your backstory, don't know yeah. anything. So I was hoping we could just start there and we'll ease into this thing. Sure. Um, I was born in South America. Uh, my parents were missionary Bible translators, so I was down there just for the first 15 years of my life. They were Bible translators? Yes. Like they were in a project where they were translating. They had a team where they had to get people from all the different denominations and Catholic, Protestant, everybody, even a Jewish rabbi, to help them in a project where they were trying to translate the Bible from 
Spanish into the language of the Inca Empire, like Machu Picchu. Uh, so Quechua language. Yeah. And so it was a big, huge project, 15-year project. And I was born at the beginning of that project down there. And I, I grew up. So what I was, uh, was third child in, they ended up having five kids. And I was just this little girl. I had a, my closest sibling was a brother. And we would just play soccer in the streets of South America. I mean, I watched Pele play in my home stadium long before he came to North America. I was such a sport fanatic. And it was just me and the boys all the time. I was like a complete tomboy. And, you know, to the point where other people in the religious community were like, what's wrong with your daughter? Like talking to my dad, right? Like what? Why? Because you like playing sports. Yeah, well, just because I was always out there and like rough and tumble and like, you know, get that girl, you know. <laughs> I I'd, And then later when I was on the Bolivian national team, because I made the national team for that country first. For it, soccer? Yeah, for eventually track. For track, okay. Because at, at some point, you know, when you go through puberty, the guys are just way better than you. And it's kind of hard at that point. And I just decided to go independent and be a, a runner. And so I started training with certain Bolivian clubs and then made the national team. At 15, 14, 15 years of age, I was doing the South American circuit. And um, and so, you know, even like I'd be going on a run with the national team like up in the hills. And then it was like a Sunday morning. And then I'd just put a, like skirt over my shorts and ride my bike dusty and sweaty to church and sit in the back pew and like like what (laughs) what is wrong with this girl like it was it was uh, definitely and then sometimes in the summer I had an aunt and uncle who were doing another project in the Amazon rainforest so I would spend sometimes my well what would be summer holidays here was winter there but it didn't matter it was hot so I'd be down like three hour Cessna flight deep into the Amazon rainforest and running around bare feet like it was my whole life I had no tv no like don't play jeopardy with me because I know nothing about anything before 1978 yeah but look at the experiences you had yeah (laughs) it was pretty amazing and and I and the the really cool thing Sean that happened when I was down there was the Bolivia national like Bolivia was going to have this massive um international competition and they hired a German coach like it was sort of a track and field coach that was brought in from Germany um, to try to help develop the Bolivian national team because they'd never won medals internationally and was right during the time I was there. So in the time between, just before I came back to Canada, from the time I was like 14, 15 and just in that range, I actually had one of the best coaches in the world who had been hired like through like a German embassy sort of help developing countries program and I had one of the best coaches in the world that came and coached me track. And my technique was just perfect. Like when I got to Abbotsford, it, like that, when we came back to Canada, when I was in high school, I was grade 10. Great technique. Like people in track and community, track and field community didn't have a clue. Like where does this girl come from? Like I'm just starting to win everything. And, you know, uh, right away NCAA recruited me and stuff and was like, my gosh, like, where did this girl come from? Like, South America, right? And I had a really good coach. Running around in the Amazon. Yeah. So I was only in British Columbia at in Abbotsford for, like, two years, and then I got recruited to the States, and then I ended up sort of doing being an NCAA All-American in the heptathlon. And... Uh, where did you go? Where did you go to Division One? Yeah. I assume, yes? Yeah, University of Maryland Terrapins. Uh, and I was team captain, and... Um, did all of the events, so I was able to score a lot of points because when you do decathlon, heptathlon, 
you do the full heptathlon, like if you have a championship, you know, ACC championship, like you, you can, I actually in one meet down there, I scored more points just because they could put me in all these different events. I scored more points the entire Wake Forest women's team in that one competition just because it was a four-day, you know, championship, ACC, Atlantic Coast Conference in those days. Maryland has changed now. But what were the fi- what are the five you were competing in? Well, it's actually ended up being seven. So it started as a pentathlon. Oh, I'm thinking pentathlon. Yeah, not hepta- yeah, yeah. So heptathlon, so they added two more, which I wish they would have just gone ahead and added another five and called it the decathlon because I think women should do 10 events just like the men. Like I think... And to this day, they still only have seven events that they do, whereas the men do the whole decathlon, like Bruce Jenner did the decathlon. So it's a whole combination of running, jumping, throwing events, uh, sprinting, distance running. Like So you have to do all of the events, and then it's the test of who's the best all-around athlete. And so I finished the NCAA. Such a, I got three older brothers, and we argue about this all the time. And we, we created back in the day the pentathlon. Yeah. Although it was a little less, there was some physical attributes in yeah. there, but there was a whole lot of other things as well. So boys yeah. being boys. Yeah. And and so, you know, like throwing the spear, javelin, yeah. to, to like high jump and long jump put, shot putting. And like, so basically um, the point is that I was kind of an all-arounder. I wasn't really super, really top, top in any one event, but I was really a good all-around athlete. And by 1986, I'd won the Canadian Championship. So I was on Team Canada for a while. Missed the other 88 Olympics, which we can get into, but that was going to be my year. Uh, and I, I was well, you, you can't skip. You can't skip over it for the listeners if they haven't picked up your book and, and okay. read a little bit about it. Yeah. You gotta, I mean, you, so, you're, you're you're the Canadian champ. Yeah. You're you're you know, this all-around athlete, yeah. which kind of throws the old, like, um, you know, hockey right now. Everybody yeah. wants to specialize, specialize, yeah. specialize, and you're completely the opposite. Yeah. So but what happened was during the 80s was huge amount of doping, cheating. And uh, what happened... The, the Here way, in Canada. Well, in Canada with a certain group, Ben Johnson's group, but, I mean, the rest of us on Team Canada, so there was like a... It was actually like a two-class system on the Canadian team as well, which was tough because I, I knew as, as early as 1986 that was my first major international event, which was in Scotland, Commonwealth Games. And I I was, we were at uh, like the team rah-rah event. You know, they always have the team rally uh, for all the Team Canada members. And then I, I had to compete the next day. So I went back to the bus because they had it at a town hall. And I went back to the bus that day early to sit there and rest while I was waiting for the rest of the team to get back on. I just didn't want to stand on my legs any longer. I had to compete. And two or three rows behind me on that school bus was a bunch of Ben Johnson's teammates, like the group that was like the, the group that belonged to Charlie Francis. And I they they were just speaking openly, like, oh, of course we're doping. Like, what do they think we're doing? Like, they want us to be top in the world, and we're doing what we have to do because everybody else is cheating, and of course we're cheating. Like, they were literally talking amongst themselves. I and I was, like, in shock because, I, I, like, I'm hearing it from the horse's mouth. These people are in the bus just talking about what they're doing with their doping. And I was shocked that, you know, with all the testing that was starting to happen, why they weren't getting caught. But obviously the people who knew how to dope, knew how to beat the test. 
And meanwhile, Ben Johnson, Carl Lewis, like the American, they were having this big rivalry and they were making a lot of money. Like they would be filling stadiums between, you know, just doing like these races, like who's going to win this time, Carl Lewis, Ben Johnson. So I thought right away when I watched over that ensuing two years between 1986, 1988, while I was there having sort of a, you know, right on the sidelines watching it in person, like how does this work? And it was pretty clear to me that um, there was so much money in the system to be gained by those who were doping and the people around them that there were times like, for example, when you'd go to an invitational competition in Europe, um, the meet directors would, they these guys were saying this on the bus, like they would literally promise they wouldn't test them so they could just run and make, like fill a stadium with 100,000 people and everybody make, walks away with money. Like th- there was like an incentive to not catch people. And believe me, there was way more cheating beyond Team Canada. Like it was only a few people on Team Canada, but like all across the world. So, Well, it's just funny to me when when I hear you tell a story. I was born in 86. So you yeah. can imagine like a lot of this. I'm like, yeah. Happening kinda, a long time ago. Yeah. And I kind of remember parts yeah. of it. Obviously, Ben Johnson, like everybody knows, knows the story. Happened. Yeah. But I would say as a Canadian, they really focus on Russia and-, and East how Germany. The, and yes. And how they were cheating and, you know, yeah. and we kind of get glazed over. Well, and then we we only got caught that one time. It was in the '88 Olympics, and I was not at the Olympic Games that year because um, the way the Canadian uh, national team or Olympic committee decided to pick their athletes for the Olympics was to just compile a list of the top performances in the world and say you have to be top 15. But if but in my event there were women from Soviet Union and East Germany who were flooding the top lists with their performances from meets that were never being tested. So we had a drug-tainted world list against which I was trying to compete clean to try to get even onto my own national team, my my own Olympic team. And frankly, it's informing me to this day since I, I mean, the long story is I'll eventually get to the point where I'm now a sport performance fitness professional because I have my PhD in kinesiology, which I got a little bit after that. But the point is that I worked and pushed myself way too hard to get into that, like in that last year. To compete against people who were doing things yeah, that were Yeah, and I didn't have the proper recovery because, I, you know, like when you take drugs, you obviously helps your recovery, like if, you know, if you're going to lift heavy and then it can help you recover. And so I was stupid. I, I actually overtrained and then ended up hurting myself. So in the end, I didn't even finish the Olympic trials. I got hurt in the middle of that. So I can't say that I oh. should have been there because I got hurt, but I can say that I was training too hard. And if I knew what I know now as a coach, I would have never been in that position and I would probably would have made the Olympic team. But I, there was so much I learned through that injury and through that process about energy management. And I've said this to a young man just yesterday, a tennis player, like the number one thing, once you've done all the good training and stuff and you've got the technique and everything, the number one factor to be a high performance athlete in any sport is energy management. You have to understand when to put the energy in, when you're going to spend your energy, how you're going to manage your energy. I mean, you can be the top, you know, you can be... McDavid, but if you show up to a, a game and you're exhausted, then what good are you? So you have to figure out your energy levels. And I didn't do it that year. And I mean, it was bad and I, you know, hurt my own chances, but 
um, eventually then I, I went, um, well, I met an Alberta farm boy uh, just as I was working on my master's degree while I was still training for the, you know, Olympic team. And um, this was in the late 80s. And then he ended up, like we met at University of Saskatchewan because that's where I was actually, when I got back from the NC2A, I was training in Saskatoon. And he was there doing his master's in agronomy. But immediately his his goal was to work in Africa with African farmers, like trying to improve their crop uh, yields and stuff like that through drought resistance, pest resistance, plant breeding. So once I finished, like we got engaged over the phone. He was already in Africa when I was still training for the <laughs> Olympic. And uh, what? And yeah, and like you can't you can't say things like that and then not at least tell the story. You got okay. engaged over the phone. Yes, because he had left. We had made a connection. Obviously, we started going out dating uh, in Saskatoon. But as soon as we realized we were in love, he th- took off and started working on his PhD through McGill in West Africa. So our entire relationship was sort of writing letters because there was no, there wasn't even, uh, you know any kind of email in those days. So I'd wait for three weeks, like I'd write a letter and then I'd wait for three weeks for his reply to whatever I said in that letter. And it was just getting really hard and that was like in 87. And so I was in the middle of all this hard training because the Olympics were in 88, so I was still training. And I finally just said to him by by about, I think it was probably April of that year of 88, uh, no, of 87, excuse me. I just said, look, I. I can't keep doing this. I'm way too much in love with you. It's again draining my energy. I ha- I can't do. I can't. There's nothing I can do without thinking about what's going on. And I can't. I hate having a conversation where I say something and then I have to wait three weeks to hear what yeah, your response is. Yeah, kids today is. can't even rem- like can't yeah. even fathom that. So I basically wrote him a letter, just basically saying, "Look, we got to either decide that someday we're going to be together." Or we just stop because I can't, this is too much energy for me. Like I just can't, my emotional, I just can't, I can't do all the stuff I'm doing for, I was trading five hours a day, still working on a master's degree. Like I just, I just couldn't do it anymore. And so all of a sudden I get a phone call three weeks later or two weeks later from this little outpost in West Africa where it was the, it was the, apparently he says it was the, um, post office in a city where they that was the only phone that was working that you could actually pay to call anybody overseas. And he called and said, hey, I got your letter. You want, Will you marry me? And I was like, in that very moment, on his end, a guy started to jackhammer and he couldn't hear my answer. So like, he... <laughs> I had a visiting athlete from Rice University, another heptathlete, she's sleeping on the living room floor visiting us at the training center. And it was five in the morning and I'm yelling at the phone, in the phone, yes, I will marry you. And and then uh, he wouldn't hear my response. And then I yell it again. And she's like, she wakes up and she's like, what is going on? <laughs> like we're five in the morning and you're telling somebody you're going to marry them and you're like, you're yelling and and she was so confused, but it was funny. So eventually he got my message. So we ended up, okay, we were engaged, but I wasn't going to see him until, you know, a year hence. So we just, you know, but at least I knew, okay, I'll put that, I can park that emotion. I knew, at least I that, know my future. Honestly, Lynn, that, that that's right up there with some of the greatest stories I've ever heard, right? <laughs> like, I mean, that's, that's a fantastic story. <laughs> Thank you. Well, it was just funny because that girl that was from Rice University is laying on my, living room floor that day she is now a world athletics 
official starter. She was at the World Championships starting the men's sprints, the sprinting events uh, this last year. Like, I mean, she's way high up as an official in track and field now and like official, you know, and, and she's she like was... one of the top women in, in world athletics. And she was there to witness my little moment there. Uh, but, you know, she and I still laugh about that day. She's like, what? What was going on? And, you know, it worked. Like, uh, as long as I knew what the goal was, I could put it aside now and say, okay, like, I'm confident. Like, I'm going to see this Alberta farm boy, my little, uh, my my dairy farmer guy. I'm going to, someday we're going to end up together and I can just train and not worry about it anymore. So that, that was kind of like, good and so we uh we we were engaged and then uh soon as I didn't make the Olympic team of course I was I retired because I did want to get married to him eventually so we got married in uh Millet Alberta in a little country Millet? church yeah Millet Alberta and where his home farm was like in that's December of 88 where is Millet, Millet Alberta? Millet Alberta is in that Highway 2A when you go between Leduc and Wetaskiwin. So okay. like okay, yep. the, the highway diverges. Millet's the sort of the little township or the little town just between Leduc and Wetaskiwin. So we were, we were married in a little country church there. And then immediately he had to go back to McGill and that I started my PhD at Simon <laughs> Fraser in Vancouver. So then the next f- about three years ensued where... We were, he was going West Africa, McGill, like Montreal, and I was going Vancouver, sometimes flying to West Africa. Like we were floating around the world. It's like sometimes seeing each other, sometimes not. And people are looking at us like, you're really married? Like you never see the guy. And there was people, there were athletes that never, they didn't believe I was actually married. Like they, 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 they thought I was making this story up. <laughs> and, but eventually um, I did make it. Finally, I got my PhD and I was working. I finally joined Stan, Stanford Blade is my husband. He's now the Dean of Agriculture at U of A. Really? Yeah. And I finally joined him in West Africa. And we were at that point, he was working just south of the Sahara Desert. So um, we were in that town. You know where Boko Haram has kidnapped all those girls? And Sure. That was the region. So it was an Islamic area. But I was just like, well, I don't have much to do. Like I was working a little bit on some papers and stuff. So I toggled on down over to the local university called Biro University of Kano. And that was, I just found that phys ed department. I said, look, I got my PhD in kinesiology. Uh, do you need any help? Like I can, I can teach, you know, biomechanics, uh, nutrition, whatever. What do you want me to teach? Exercise phys? And they said, well, listen, this is great because even the dean of that department at that point had only had his master's degree. So I was like one of the only lecturers who would be, have a PhD. But they said the one requirement, you know, we, we insist that all of our lecturers in the university are willing to teach an activity class. Like you have to teach something. And I thought, well, track and field. I'm going to teach because I have all the events. Like I can teach it. But then I thought, can I teach it? Because I'd only been an athlete. I had never been a coach of, you know, like at that level and teaching teachers how to teach kids kind of thing, like future phys ed teachers. And so I uh, I agreed. And actually the funny, one of those funny stories was my welcome to faculty dinner there. We had an outdoor sort of little sort of picnic area and there was like a fire and chicken and rice and stuff. And I was given my plate of food. This is my welcome to faculty dinner. 
I was given a plate of food and then they led me into a separate building because it was an Islamic uh, area. I, my welcome to faculty dinner consisted of me sitting in a room building by myself eating my chicken and rice. Um, so it was interesting. It was like right away getting a deep dive into that local Islamic culture and dealing with it. And they, they were very, they, you know, they were respectful of me. And there were things I was probably allowed to do that their own women, women probably wouldn't have been allowed to do. But I started to become familiar with what, what, what happens, like what, what's the culture? How do you, how do you navigate this culture? So I wrote a letter right away to World Athletics, like the World Center for Track and Fields in Monaco, just like FIFA, I think, is in Geneva. Uh, World Track is in Monaco. So I write a letter to Monaco saying, look, I'm now, I, this is who I used to be. I'm now Linda Blade. Um, I am now um, trying to teach track and field as an activity option for a bunch of men in, in my university. It was all men. Uh, and I need some textbook or something on how do you coach, like just a basic textbook that I can actually use for my course. So I wait a little bit and I'm, I'm sort of making my way through and I get a call. So this is like, okay, like I had been in South America, 1977, and this was already like 1994. I get a call in my house, south of the Sahara Desert, and it's a guy calling from Monaco. And he goes, Linda, you wrote me a letter. What, don't you know who I am? Like it was the, the, the global, director for all of sport education it was Bjorn the guy who was my coach in Bolivia really yeah it was like small world small world like all of a sudden he's like well you're doing exactly what I want you to do he says listen this is exciting he says you know so almost 20 years later whatever or less like maybe 17 but anyway so the point is he says I went to Bolivia my experience was I went and coached you guys I I, I did all this when I left after my three-year term the whole program fell apart, right? And so he said, what my new idea is for the world athletics is that I want to have a system where we train people to lecture local coaches, teach local coaches how to coach their own athletes, and then get out of there and then you leave a legacy because then if the expert leaves, you've got a bunch of guys who know how to coach. So he was had this whole new program globally where he was gonna co teach, like you go into countries, and you get a, a group of top coaches and you teach them how to coach the kids. And when he found out that I was coaching in my region and the Islamic part is important, he said, I have a job for you to do. I'm gonna send you to Nairobi, Kenya. You're gonna get your World Athletics Lecturer Certificate and then I'm gonna send you into Islamic countries to teach women how to coach the girls. Because I was one of the few females who, who would have passed that course. It was a really tough course to be a lecturer. So I did that, and so I was teaching in the in the university in Africa. I was then being sent to my first big international thing was like I was sent into Iran, Tehran, to teach the women. I was the first Western woman those females in sport had ever seen since the revolution. Like I, they brought me in, and I did this whole course for like thirty of the top female coaches in Iran, teaching them how to te coach the girls. Uh, that was in '95. We had moved back because Stan's, Stan's dad on the farm had passed away uh, and he wanted to be closer to his mom. So that's when we moved back to Edmonton. But in that time period before I started having my own children, 
I was a global traveler. I would be sent by World Athletics to Singapore, uh, you know, like Sri Lanka, Trinidad and Tobago, Guyana. Like I, they sent me everywhere to not only to Islamic countries, but a lot of different places where I could teach the coaches how to coach like the, the athletes. So I was basically sitting in Edmonton, an international lecturer of coaches with my PhD in kinesiology. And I couldn't get a job at U of A. I, I, I was like, just like, what's going on? Like, I can't make inroads in Edmonton, but I'm this world expert. And I can't, you know, I'm just sitting here in Edmonton. And so thankfully, um, after a while, I had my PhD, PhD supervisor in Vancouver had done some work with Curtis Brackenbury, who used to be with the Oilers. And he was at the time working with the Edmonton Oilers on talent identification and the junior programs. And apparently, like all of a sudden, I realized Curtis and I had had crossed paths um, in uh, Vancouver when he came to ask my supervisor about how to talent ID hockey, ho junior hockey player, like little hockey players, like who, how do you find the talent? Because we were doing the body, the body measurements and uh, relating, it, relating it to growth and development and how you could predict um, performance and stuff like that. So Curtis right away is like, Linda is in Edmonton? And um, Bill Ross, my, my supervisor said, yeah, absolutely. So Curtis calls me. He's the only guy in Edmonton I even knew at that point. Like I was like, I didn't know anybody. I came to a city that I didn't, I knew a lot of people in Saskatoon, a lot of people in Vancouver, knew nobody in Edmonton. And all of a sudden, I'm helping the Oilers. Like uh, it's you know, and Curtis, Curtis was his his idea was to pick my brain on that whole idea of, can you measure a kid like all the body size, shape, proportion, skin full thickness, muscle mass, uh, arm lengths, all the physical features of an athlete, and then have any sort of predictive capacity to like watching the move, how are they going to improve, or how who's going to end up being the best player. And so he really had this idea. He had all these spreadsheets, uh, and I remember going through that. So I helped him for a couple months with this idea, like how are we going to improve your ability to recruit, right, and on spot talent. And then one day he asked me, he goes, Linda, what, like, what is plyometrics? Because he had heard this term from track and field and from sport performance training, like what is, like, it's power explosive training. What's play? Explain it to me. Like, what what do you guys do in track? Like for this, for speed and power. Oh, that's easy. So I just started explaining him what we do. I said, let's go out to the field. I'm going to show you some drills. Like this is how you get faster. This is how you get more explosive. He we went back to his house. Still had all the spreadsheets on the table on the talent ID stuff. He goes, but you know what? I think we're not getting very far on this stuff because it's not very predictive. You should drop this and actually just start training athletes on their speed and power with your plyometrics and your your track knowledge. I said, oh, oh, okay. So he says, well, I, I have some athletes that might, like, might need your help. And actually the first guy on the Oilers that I helped, and he might not even remember me, but it was Louis DeBrusque. Like, I went out there, and because he was a big defenseman, big broad shoulders, tough guy, but he wasn't moving very fast, and, and Curtis wanted to figure out what's going on. And so, I, you know, Curtis, uh, well, Louis got traded very quickly after I started working with him, but there's one thing that we had a breakthrough on, 
And I was watching him do like your typical track and field, like the marching, high knee marching run, like working on the coordination. And there is this principle in track that, in any human movement actually, that the range of your shoulder swing, like when you're running, the range where of the shoulder, the split, should match your hip, like how your knee comes up. And so when those things are perfectly matched, you're gonna actually be able to produce better power and speed on the, on, on the move. Um, and I noticed, of course, Louis, because he was very strong, I mean, he had big shoulders. When I asked him to swing his arm, like he wasn't getting his elbow back past mid, like mid chest, like it was just like stopping there. And so it was pretty clear to me with his case Probably the thing we could do that would help his speed right away is give him more shoulder flexibility because you can imagine if you're doing this when you're running instead of getting a full a full swing, you're not getting the amount of you know distance on each stride you're going to need to get that acceleration going. So in his case, I was I was already on route to making him fast. I felt I could make him much faster by just improving his his shoulder range of motion so that he could have a, because when you see his leg swing, like when I'd stand there and get him to swing his leg, well, there was nothing wrong with his hip flexibility. It was, it was a good rotation. But when your shoulder, like mechanically, if your shoulder's not got the same level of swing, your leg is gonna be limited to what your arm does. So your leg is gonna stop there too. So if you don't work on that shoulder, you're not going to get the hip the hip power that you need. It, sorry for my dumb brain, but yeah. so what you're saying is <clears throat> if you can get your shoulder, your arm to Moving have a, well. a bigger range of motion. Yeah, you can run faster. You'll run faster because that'll trans faster. it'll translate to your, your yeah. legs yeah. and all of a sudden you become noticeably faster. Yes, and that's worked. It's worked in other athletes too. So the first one I had though in Edmonton was was Debrusque, and then he got traded. Traded, but, yeah. But the the point is that all of a sudden I had this thing like, oh, I can do this. Like I'm this international coaching expert. Do I? I don't need to be a university professor. I can just go and help people. I can go and find athletes yeah. and help them. And this was a revelation to me that I could just have my own private business and just consult. So I thought, well, f fair enough. Like they don't need me at the university for some reason. I keep applying, and they don't want me there. So I mean, I'll just, I'll just do this. I'll just go into a private sport performance consultation, and I had a few. And then I, then Curtis Brackenberry had invited me to the one in massive. Like this was a huge, critical, pivotal moment for me in '96 and '97, where we had it was a Canmore uh, NHL coaches. Um, sort of little seminar that they all had with themselves. And um, so there was like coaches there from New Jersey Devils, uh, all across the board, Chicago Blackhawks. They, and they, what Curtis wanted me to do was present plyometrics to these coaches and say like, there's a kind of training you can do that improves your speed and power. And these are the kinds of techniques that you can use. And so um, there was a lady sitting in that group because she was also there uh, to, to um, work with figure skaters, but she was interested to see what some of us would say. And it was actually a professor at U of A was there to present um, 
the VO2 max, like cardio. And he said, Linda, listen, we don't know any, like back in the 90s, they just didn't know that much about the speed explosive power stuff. And he says, like, can I get you to come in to my U of A level four phys ed class on exercise physiology and just explain what you just showed the hockey coaches here? And um, no problem. So in that group was a PhD student who was working with Glenora Club figure skaters. And I was explaining how it, it, this, whatever the principles I have in terms of training methodology, those same ones would apply to getting more height off the ice, like on a jump. Um, so improving your, your jumping, your speed, whatever. And she says, I need you in the club, in the Glenora Club, to train the figure skaters and help them to increase their vertical uh, off ice, obviously. And so she got me in there. I became sport performance fitness trainer at, at the Glenora Club, Royal Glenora Club. And within a few years, all of a sudden, Jamie Soleil and David Pelche came to my door and I planned their Olympic gold medal moment. I, I was the fitness trainer that planned their peak at uh, Salt Lake City Olympics. So that was the gold medal where the French judge was caught cheating and, and, uh, but they won, you know, they were perfect. And uh, it was a tremendous opportunity for me to help them and, and be part of their coaching team and be the one, I was the one that was turning the energy on and off. Like you have to cycle the energy properly and the, and the training volume and intensity to peak properly. And so I was the one that was sort of in charge of that cycle of training, the cycles, whereas the on-ice coaches uh, who go with them to the Olympics, they're just doing the same program, every, like, like trying to perfect the program every day on the ice. But I'm the one that takes them off. This week you're going to do hill sprints hard. This week you're going to do this really dangerous workout that we have we have to get it right. You have to be a little bit, you know, so like I'm, I was the one who was behind the scenes building up their capacity, their physical capacity. And they had such a good experience with me. So David Peltier right now even works with the Oilers. And back around, I think when, well, I must have been like 2016, even more recently, like 2017, once in a while they'll bring me in because of the connection with David and he's recommending me sometimes for the prospects, like in the, in the Oilers prospects, some of the summer training sure. for Thailand. And uh, so he, you know, I've helped and um, Craig McTavish, really liked what I had to say some of the things I explained what we were what we were trying to do and it's even more like the expertise goes into like the sequencing like when should you do a heavy deadlift if you're going to do a heavy deadlift on a Tuesday should you sprint on a Wednesday no like you you got to figure out your your cycles you got to figure out your recovery and when can it, can an can an individual figure this out or is this something like I'm just talking the everyday person not the elite athlete at yeah. this point yeah. Oh, no. Yeah. Like, I think a lot of it is just you look at, it's a trial and error thing sometimes, but, and every athlete can be different. Like every player, you have players that can be really explosive and fast no matter what they do. But the, you have other players who, who get fatigued. And if you push the nervous system too far one day, you can't, they can't come back and be really crisp and fast. So you have to figure out each player, like within a range, like what, what can they manage? Like what can they actually, what does this input, like when you give somebody a stimulus, a training stimulus, what's that going to do 
um, to their overall performance uh, a day from now, two days from now, three days from now. Um, and even the kind of stretching you do, like where, where do you stretch? Do you stretch a lot before you work out or after? Like, I think there are some things that are pretty obvious to a track coach, what you should and shouldn't do. But I think a lot of- What are, con- what are, what are obvious to a track coach on what you should okay, and shouldn't so do? Okay, so there's various kinds of like a yoga type stretching that they like to do now in hockey um, where you get, you know, your, your long holes and it's supposed to activate. But if you hold, if you do anything slow and long holding slow stuff before a speed workout, forget it. Like it's not going to work. It's just not, it, the, the speed is, you have to do elastic and dynamic. And the other thing is, speaking of elasticity, you have to do stuff that is revving you up to the moment of where you're going to have to require the kind of R, what I call RPM. So like RPM is like the rotation around a joint. Like if you're going to need a high RPM, you don't start by sticking your leg in one position and holding it for a minute. You've got to do more like dynamic, elastic kind of, let's go, let's get going. Cause you're going to have to need that. It's going to be a stimulus. It's like the nervous system has to be primed to do that kind of workout. Um, and, and yet you do need flexibility. So that needs to happen at night, maybe before you go to bed. Like you don't have to do it on the, on, in the gym. I always tell the kids now, do it before you, you do the long holds before you go to bed and makes you sleepy anyway. And then you go to sleep, right? Like do the, if that's the time of day that you're going to do nothing afterwards, that's when you should do your stretching. So, I mean, there's just sequences that work and others that don't work. And, and so even the idea. Is, is that something you learned along the way or was taught to you? Uh, when you talk about the German coach, well, is that something? Well, the like German the seat- coach taught us that a long time ago. But also, I've seen I've seen a lot of research on what is on the sequencing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and of course, lots of experience. So you got to get it. You start getting an in- instinct for it, and so ultimately, like all of that is to say that I've ended up helping athletes in seventeen different sports, not just hockey, not just figure skating, volleyball, basketball, rugby soccer, volleyball. Like I, I get lots of any given year. I've got maybe since 1997, I've had like anywhere from five or 10 different sports, athletes from different sports that come and we just work on whatever it is they need to improve. Yeah. Um, and so I can, you know, usually get, and so basically that's been my life. I, I just enjoy it so much because every single kid that comes to me like if you if you go into a normal fitness training you usually just have one workout you deliver throughout the year to keep somebody fit like if you're just doing the health and wellness training but sport performance training is completely different if your sport performance fitness involves getting ready for you're at point a and you got a championship at point b so every like you work backwards like what what's gonna so when do you stop the hard work so you can peak and then before that, what workout do you do so that you can build it up, whatever the system is you need to build up, if it's cardio or whatever, to that point. And then there might be things that you need to have that are weaknesses in the system. So you have an actual plan, like it's like a template blueprint of getting you from where you are right now, filling in all of the weak gaps and doing the right cycling of the workout until you get to that important like an NHL final whatever it happens to be so 
sport performance. And the other thing about sport performance fitness is that if, let's say, let's say for the sake of argument, I got hurt, for example, training for the Olympic team too much. I overtrained. Well, overtraining or pulling a hamstring, let's say that, let's say that we call that falling off a cliff. You're going to fall, you push the limit, you push, push, push. The point in, the whole point in sport performance training is that you push athletes as close to the cliff as you can without letting them fall off. Like you're pushing them to that moment where they might almost get hurt and either they're going to hurt or that you understand that they're going to get hurt really soon so you back off again. And now you've pushed it hard again, now you back off again. And and you get an instinct for that. And obviously my insurance is much higher than your normal fitness trainer. But like I'm just saying that you're pushing limits where you might risk people getting hurt because you do have to do that. You have to push a limit. Whereas normal fitness trainers are just going through like this general, like, okay, you're going to do something or cardio, you're going to do some weightlifting. No, we have things that we do. And in my training, in my training, it's a lot more than just even the, the deadlifts and the squats. Because when you go in the gym and just like squat and go up and down with a weight, where in sport do you ever do that movement? Like, do you stand on the ice and like literally squat up and down? Like, no, it's it's whippy actions around joints. You want to be elastic. You want like so. I do a lot of elastic work. I notice that a lot more coaches now work with the elastics. One of the guys that really has brought that into um, the, um, the the I guess into favor or that whole tech that whole methodology um, is um, who's a quarterback. Um, Tom Brady, like he, he's kept his, he kept his fitness a lot longer by being, having that youthful elasticity in his body. And he did that by working with elastics. Like that was, a, that's a principle too, by the way, because we are biological beings and this is going to lead into this whole trans stuff, but we're biological beings. And part of the beauty of the human body is that we adapt to our environment. So you see the guys in the gym who just lift heavy, solid, straight, weight all the time and they walk around they're stiff like you you get the properties of the things you put on your body so if you're gonna if you're only gonna lift heavy weight you're gonna be this guy if you want to move and you want your body's gonna be whipping and you're just like a elastic band and a slap shot like then you got to get something on your body move that way and so I use a lot of like elastic band work um like leg swinging through with a little bit of elastic resistance like there's a lot of different kinds of techniques you can do to actually try to mimic the qualities that you want in that athlete and the nature of the material you use impacts how the body looks when it moves so like if you want to be more fluid go into the water do water work and so I bring the oilers like in when I was doing the uh, like the summer dry land, we spent days, one day a week at least, in the pool doing deep water running and water like different. Like you're just trying to get more fluidity through your body, and and there's a characteristic of that that you can actually develop in certain ways in a safe way, especially in this water training is amazing. So like as a as almost like a recovery workout as well. So you're you're doing like the sort of fluid kind of elastic motion. Uh, with a little bit more range of motion, a little more flexibility. It's kind of like this whole combination of things that make you feel more fluid. So, you know, and that's not the fluid we're talking about when they talk about gender fluidity, but, you know, we're, 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 
my whole methodology has developed over 30 years and I really, really love like helping athletes just find their optimal points. And sometimes an athlete's too like loosey goosey. Like I, I, I coached one lady for heptathlon who used to be um, a rhythmic gymnast and she was her part-time job off training was being a contortionist. Well, she was way too flexible. I had to get her more solid. So then you would lift a little bit more, just straight up weights. So, I mean, you have to decide what qualities you want in that body to say, like, what are we trying to achieve here? Like, what's the end point? And so it's a constant sort of puzzle. It's like a big Sudoku puzzle, just trying to put it together all the time for these athletes. Like, you have to interview them all the time, find out what's going on, get the feedback. Is that working? We tweak this thing. We tweak that thing. We're trying to get to a certain point. And that's the beauty of sport performance fitness training and being an expert in that versus just having this own boring routine you repeat over and over and over again, right? Like you're constantly trying to push and then we get the hurdles in there doing the high hurdle jumps and like it, it's amazing. Like the stuff you can do can really um, change a person's, you know, dynamic properties in terms of how their body is able to whip. Like a, even like a, you know, like a um, punt football. You don't just put your leg down on the ground and then hit the ball. You have a pre-stretch, you come in, pre-stretch your hip and whip your leg through. It's a whip. It's a whippy action. A lot of what human beings do is this whippy stuff where you brace one side. Like if I'm going to wrestle you and I put you down on the ground, I'm going to brace with one side and dynamically push you with the other side. So you're figuring out which sides of the body need to be brace. And then when you're doing it like in football, if you're going to do a deke, then one side's going to be bracing and then you suddenly you switch roles. So like one side breaks and then you move the other way and the other side breaks and then you move the other way. And running itself is a, is a toggle between the, the leg that's on the ground is isometric holding, bracing, and the other leg is swinging through. So your, your RPMs, like somebody like Andre, Andre de Grasse is super amazing because he wasn't strong at all. Like it was just this neurological whippiness that he had that could generate huge amounts of force at high speed. And, and so it's just so fascinating when you watch different athletes and how, like, how are they achieving that particular motion or speed or movement or power? And there, and some athletes have certain strategies to do that. And other people, like you see sprinters like Andre DeGrasse, who's like relatively weak when he started out in the weight room and he was already beating guys. And then you have other guys like Maurice Green or something who are total mus- muscle animals. Like just they, they get their speed through that, right? And so it's not like it's all one answer either. You have to figure out the body. Like what, what are you working with here? And, and what is their innate physical features? And then how do you work with that to get the best performance out of them? And so... That's been my life. Okay, so imagine me going having, that's my life. I get, I get elected as president of, of track and field in Alberta. So I'm president of the board of directors of Athletics Alberta. That's, I get elected in 2014. By 2018, I'm sitting in a meeting in Ottawa, and they're telling me, look, we got this new policy. They made us read it, where a guy can come along one day and say he's a woman, Compete as a woman, and then the next day, if he does, if he feels like he's a man again, he can go back and compete with men. Like 
completely complete self ID. I mean, my whole life I've coached only people who are only female or male, and I definitely know the difference. And we definitely have records that show this is male sport performance. This is what it looks like. This is the level that that's at. This is female properties and characteristics. They're completely distinct. It's just like Formula One versus stock car, completely different models of human body. And suddenly we're, we're saying we can get this Formula One to just come back and forth anytime they want. So like I am at this thing where um, I've got a PhD, I'm a sport performance professional, and somebody's telling me I'm supposed to just say, oh. You're supposed to do uh, the 1984. Yeah. And it's just like, it was so shocking, Sean. It was like, it was so shocking to me that anybody would think in their right mind they could tell us to do this. And and I'm sitting around the table with the presidents from Ontario and Quebec. Like, we're in Ottawa, and I'm saying this can't be true. Like, you, you, you can't, you got to be kidding me. Like, this is, this is crazy. And they, instead of looking me in the eye and saying, well, you know, Linda, yeah, you're right, but, you know, somehow this is a new law, and Trudeau did this, and then we have to do this. Uh, instead of saying even that, they all sat there and they just looked down at their hands. Like, they wouldn't look at me in the eye. Nobody wanted to say anything. And it's like, what? Like, what's happening here? You're you're telling us this is going to be a new rule. You can't justify it. You look at your hand. Like, you're not, there's no explanation for this. Like, the shock was incredible to me. Like, a, am I, did I get, step through the looking glass? Like, are we in another sort of parallel universe? Like, sport is male and female. They're two different categories. And we know that. It's no, it's no secret. So why are we doing this? So um, I went and I looked up. I went and looked up. Okay, where is this coming from? So I looked at the source. And this is the, the, I found this thing from the Canadian Center for Ethics and Sport. It called, it's a document that was produced in 2016 called Creating Inclusive Environments for Trans Participants in Canadian Sport. And I looked at that and I read through it. It was one of the most bizarre things I'd ever read. The things that they were claiming in there. Um, uh, 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 I'll give you one example. I'll read verbatim. It says, one of the things it says, because um, you're wondering, well, if, if a man can, can self-ID as a woman, doesn't, that, doesn't he have a, a competitive advantage over female competitors, even if he takes drugs or whatever? This is what this this document, one of the things from it says, the expert working group acknowledges the concern that trans women athletes who grew up biologically male and who do not undergo hormonal intervention may be at a competitive advantage. So they're, re they're recognizing that it's okay, that they do have a competitive advantage when competing against uh, women's, uh, women in sport. Nonetheless, it is recognized that trans females, now they create a new word because there's no such thing as trans females, trans women, like can, they can transition to seem like they're women, but they're not female, are not males who became female. Rather, these are people who have always been psychologically female, but whose anatomy and physiology, for reasons yet unexplained, have manifested as male. Like, that is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Like, oh, they're imagining, okay, so they have this psychological predilection that they seem to want to appear as women, which is their right. If they want to look like a woman, any guy, any guy can do that. But then to, to justify them being in women's sport is like, well, somehow they've always been women, but, but 
just somehow their bodies have manifested as male. So it's not their fault. Like, like, seriously? That is complete religious dogma. That has, there's no evidence that just because somebody in their brain thinks that they might be a woman one day, that they were always from birth a woman, a female, but just had male body parts. Like, what are you talking about? This, like, this is the kind of stuff that was in this document. And, you know, when I looked at who's the member of the expert work, working group, so I looked at the next page. Who are the people on the committee? Who would have done this? Was there any biological expert on this group? So I'm going through the names on under the acknowledgments of who are the expert people. And I'm seeing, let's say, the former CEO of Ottawa Soccer Club and blah, 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 all these sports people, associate director of BC Hockey, this guy. I go through this, and the one person who would either have medical training, biological training, or whatever, have any authority in this area, was a man named Stephen Federer, Dr. Stephen Federer. And his role, when I look him up, because I'm thinking, well, this is the guy that would be sitting around the table telling everybody else what to do. He's guy in, in Ottawa who does sex changes on children, sexual transition on, on underage minors. This is a guy who, who is completely ideological and doing the surgery on children. And he's now coming in, sitting on a sport panel, considered to be the expert working group on trans and sport. And then they take this document and they travel around the country and they go to every single sport and say, this is the new rule now. This is what you have to do. And it wasn't, it was the most extreme thing. It was the most extreme thing that you can actually ever imagine because even internationally, uh, the International Olympic Committee at first in 2003 said, well, men could be in women's sport if they had the surgery, if they actually, you know, got castrated. Then by 2015, oh, well, you know, it's too harsh to say that a guy has to get castrated. So maybe we just reduce their testosterone. Okay. So they, they even the International Olympic Committee said, you've got to do something to try to make it fair. And even then it was never fair, but we can get into that too, but it was never going to be fair. You're, just because you, listen, you can undergo surgery and you can get castrated. It's not going to make your lungs smaller than a, like to the woman's size. It's not going to make your heart, like it didn't make any sense to allow a guy into a women's sport. Okay. So, but this, the and these people, the, the ultimate irony of the Center for Ethics and Sport is that this is the governing body who's only, this is not the government, a, a government non sort of not-for-profit organization whose key role after the Ben Johnson affair, after Canada was shamed by getting somebody caught in the Olympic Games with drugs, their only role was to spread the message around Canada, you shouldn't cheat. No cheating, no doping. They would do the doping control tests. That, and of course, you know, I had a direct link to not being able to make the Olympic team because some people on my team were cheating and it was all using the drug lists for a selection. And now, all these years later, I'm president of Athletics Alberta, and I'm seeing the same entity that was supposed to be protecting Canada from cheating, promoting the most, the worst kind of cheating, which is, you know, way worse than doping. Because if, a, if, 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 if you're a woman and you take, let's say, testosterone, you might get up to eight, seven, eight, nine percent advantage. If you're a guy in women's sports, you can have anywhere from 15 to 160% advantage. And they're promoting that. Meanwhile, they still do the doping control. So a guy can do whatever he wants. But if a woman 
is even found with one drop of exogenous testosterone that she's somehow taking supplements in her body, and these people do the test, they could ban her for life for but doing a, that. But applaud the transgendered. Yes. So this same group then hires people because they get huge grants from, of course, uh, Trudeau government is all in, in favor of all of this. So <laughs> they get they get huge. I, sh- I shouldn't laugh, but carry on. Well, so they get huge grants to go around and they, get, they would pay a bunch of, you know, younger university age women. Like he was smart enough to not come in as a man saying that men should be in women's sports. They would hire these university women to go around and have special seminars, and we had one. Uh, Athletics Alberta or Athletics Canada had a, a had a presentation that was given to us in, I think it was like December 2019, 2019. Maybe it was in two thousand eighteen. But some lady comes into the room where we're having our AGM, and she's telling us how oh eleven percent. You know, even if a man has eleven percent advantage, a male body, she wouldn't call him a man. A male body has 11% advantage. You know, that's not a really big deal. And then all the track coaches are like, excuse me? <laughs> you wouldn't even you wouldn't even make the final. Like, you wouldn't even make, you wouldn't even win the first heat if you had 11% disadvantage. Like, what are you talking about? So they'd send these people around with the, talking about the gingerbread, the genderbread person, uh, where you have, like, your sex is one thing, gender identity is another. Fair enough. But then, like, acting like biological sex, the difference is, is no big deal. Like, then we should just overlook it and just look at identities. Uh, and so, this, but the point is, is this group that was pushing that were acting like they were the authority and they were being treated, whether it's Hockey Canada, because even the Hockey Canada inclusion um, policy now cites this document, that cites this erroneous, non-scientific, completely biased document as their reason why now we're going to get into the dressing room, why kids can identify as whatever they want. So it's this is the single most um, culpable document that has led a lot of Canadian sports groups right down the wrong path, away from my, from accepting and acknowledging that biological sex matters in sport. And in fact, it's probably the only thing that matters because we never cared. Like, did we ever pick athletes on the basis of their religion? Religion is, no, like we never cared. Like the whole purpose, the beauty of sport is that ideology, whatever it is in your mind, you could put that to the sidelines and run your race. We didn't care. Those are identities. Like if you're Muslim, Jewish, Christian, those are identities. Those are your personal belief systems and ideologies. And if you're, you know, we all change our identities over a lifetime. One day you're a parent. Like you weren't always a parent. Now you have a new identity. You're a father, a mother, whatever. Do we make special policies for all the cousins who play sport? Do we, like, do we make a policy now? Like we have a new identity, a parent policy. Like, no, you make an eligibility policy. You don't make a trans policy. You make an eligibility policy and it doesn't matter what you identify as. You compete as male or female and get it over with. Like it is just like this whole ideology has, has invaded all of our sports because of this document and because these people pretended like they were the new authority on what sports groups should be doing in Canada. And hockey fell prey to this. And that's why the dressing room thing happened. 
That's why all this stuff happens because all of our sport leadership have been led down the path of this ideology that is antithetical to fairness in sport. And it's going to destroy sport. And I wrote a book in 2021 called Unsporting, How Transactivism and Science Denial Are Destroying Sport. And the reason I didn't say destroying women's sport is because it's going to ultimately destroy all of sport. Do you think officials in hockey, for example, want to deal with this dressing room issue? Like at some point it gets so bad that people who volunteer to run the sport just don't want to deal with it anymore. That's what I was getting at. That when an official in track, for example, if you're a, if you're a st uh, starting line official and a young man comes up and says, he's clearly a boy, clearly biological male, comes up and says, well, I feel like a woman, a girl today and I want to run this race. And you as an official say, mm, that, doesn't, that doesn't seem right to me. You look like a guy to me. That's going to be considered to be a hate speech now. What official who comes out on their, the volunteers their time to run a track meet wants to deal with this? You know, so I, I, my point is that it might be hurting girls in the short term in terms of a, a male and a, and a girl and a female race or on a female hockey team or whatever. In the long run, it's going to be officials, parents, everybody in the system don't, just doesn't want to deal with it anymore and walks away. And that's where sport gets hurt. And here's the thing. It's not just sport, Linda. It's everything. Everything. We're, exactly. we're, we're speaking doublespeak. We're, yeah. we're, we're literally enforcing something that is, is not true. Right. It's just, it's just not. Right. And, and that's, I wrote a story in a book about a hockey dad, you know, in my book, there's a story about a hockey dad in Ontario who just wanted to help coach his son's team. Sure. And he was forced to sign on and, and take this course. And then he, like a course that said the idea of the sex binary was a white man's idea that came in. Like, are you kidding me? That is so insulting to the Aboriginal uh, First Nations people as if they never knew that what biological sex was before white men came along. Like, stop this nonsense, right? Like, and then the father couldn't sign on to, like, he had to learn, like, you had to agree to use pronouns in a certain way or he didn't want to sign that document because he didn't believe it. He didn't, you can't sign something and agree to something you don't believe in. And yet too many people are. And, and he did, he didn't sign it. So he couldn't be a coach. Like this is another way to destroy sport for kids. Cause a good parent who wanted to help couldn't sign on cause he couldn't agree with it. And so it all boils down to this kind of stuff. These kind of groups who pretend like they can tell all the sports what to do and the, and the leadership class gets so scared. And in my experience being in the national meetings of Athletics Canada as president of Athletics Alberta was my experience was having one person like me have the courage to sit at the table and say, this isn't right. We shouldn't be doing this. Everybody else starts to question a little bit. But if I, if nobody had been in the room to say, look, we got to think twice about doing this because this isn't right. Oh, they just pass it. Like they just put it in their policy book. Like, and then everybody, oh, everybody's afraid. Oh, there's a new policy. Oh, oh, now we're supposed to do this or we're going to get in trouble. That's, that's how quickly it has happened in Canadian sport. We just, we just swallowed a lie that. Anybody can identify as any sex they want, and magically it changes all your cells, the trillions of cells to, you know, like it's a religion.
We never yes. picked sport on the basis of a, of a religion. Never. And we need to start saying, no, I don't agree with you. We're not doing that. And so in Athletics Alberta, I put my own policy in. You born male, you don't compete with the girls. Like that, you know, and this is what I'm talking about. National governing bodies don't have the guts. Even international governing bodies have a hard time having the guts to make the right call. This is an issue that's going to require what I call baseline leadership, leadership from below. People at the local level just saying, look, I'm going to become a board member of my local hockey team, my local hockey association. We're just going to say no. We're not doing this. And you, and you, you know, of course you risk stuff. But I mean, I, the one guy who was the president of Athletics Canada um, after the first time in 2018 when I, when I first ran into this nonsense, I'm like, what's going on? I said, what? I took him to dinner at Royal Glenora Club because he was in town. I said, Bill, explain this to me. Like, why are we doing this? Why would you say such a thing? You know our world records, Canadian records, the provincial records, everything shows the huge distinction between males and females in terms of their record. You can look at the record books. There's no mystery. I said, like, why are, you, why are we even contemplating this stuff? Why are we doing it? And he, he wouldn't really say. And I said, oh, okay. Um, tried a couple more times. And I just said, I said, like, I know what you're doing here, Bill. I said, you're afraid. You're afraid that some person going to like a trans-identified person is going to maybe sue you or something, sue our sport. There's a risk. But don't you think there's much more of a risk? There's like huge numbers of women and girls who would be disadvantaged by such a person and wouldn't they sue? Aren't you worried about the risk of hurting them and, and having huge litigation from that side of the coin? And he said girls wouldn't do that. And I'm like, wait a minute. Female athletes are fighters. You don't think somebody's bound to sue if they don't, if they lose to a guy who's come into their sport. But you see, it's this whole, the, the sadness to me isn't even about whether who will sue. Will, will the guy sue? Will the girl sue? Why should we be even talking about setting up a situation where one of those two things might happen? That's another way to destroy sport. Why are we setting it up so it's going to be contentious all the time between this group wants to be competing fairly and this other group uh, just feels like it's in their blood that day. They want to come and compete unfairly with this group. Like, and, and, the, and the funniest thing, it's not funny, but it's the most ironic thing of all, is to acknowledge like when... Bill C-16, so this was the one Jordan Peterson is always fighting against and everything. When Bill 16 came in, when they, were, when they were debating it in Parliament, you had people in Parliament standing up, their side, not my side of the story, their side. They were at the time saying biological sex is one thing, but gender identity and expression are other, is another thing. Well, nobody disagrees with that. The question is, what powers do you give one of those two things? As soon as they passed Bill C-16, they acted like, even though they argued themselves that biological sex was definitely something and this other thing was something else, they then pre proceeded to behave like biological sex doesn't exist anymore, that we're not allowed to have it as a, you know, you can't, it no longer exists in the charter as, as like 
sex is a characteristic in the charter still to this day that you cannot discriminate on the basis of that characteristic. And putting a man into a women's competition is definitely discrimination on the basis of sex. Somehow in their minds, that doesn't, sex discrimination doesn't exist anymore. So we need to say, and here's my point. My point is, in order to have a functional society, you need to acknowledge that in some parts of, of some parts of society, biological sex still takes the preeminence in terms of deciding what's fair or what's safe. Like you, they're putting rapists in women's prisons now. So you're going to have to decide, okay, do we do that? Do we, do we make a distinction on the basis of sex or on the basis of your identity? And there are times where it should be completely logical that your, your identity, your ideas, your ideology shouldn't matter at all. It's what sex you are that matters, whether it's in a locker room, a community center. There's other times in an employment situation, we don't care. You want to wear a dress to work? It's up to you, right? Like, so, so we, but see, they never allowed that within the bill itself. It was poorly written because they never acknowledged that there are, there can be sex-based exemptions to whatever this new law was. And that's the UK, like in, a, in, in the United Kingdom and Great Britain, when they pass their, um, their, their uh, gender, their equity, like Equality Act, they did have sex-based carve-outs. So when Trudeau passed his, they the, the big mistake that's happened in Canada is they never acknowledged that there was still, in the middle of that new bill on human rights, there was still the human right to have sex distinction in certain realms of life. And so when the conservatives get in, I hope they can maybe, they either repeal that law or they amend it. But having said all that, nobody can disagree with me that... Even the people who are ideologically captured in the trans movement do agree that there are two kinds of trans. There's going to be the female-born person who wants to identify as male, as a man, and there's a male person who wants to identify as a woman. Interestingly, in sport, guess what happens? The female type who want to be non-binary trans or something else, they stay in women's sports. We already accept them in our sports because they're female born. Didn't matter. Like the Quinn on the world on Team Canada Soccer, they stay and compete with the women. So the only type of trans that we're really dealing with here in terms of these kinds of flipping floppy is the men going to, is the men going to the women. So the male born ones. So here's what happens when there's a male born person who suddenly is identifying as trans and wants to compete with the women. That person is also discriminating against the trans who are female. So it's not about, it's, it's, we aren't being the ones anti-trans. We accept women in our sport, accept the trans cohort who are female. It's these guys who are coming over and discriminating against all the female athletes, no matter whether they're non-binary, trans, anything else. So it's actually anti-trans. If you're saying a man can come into women's sport, because that guy is discriminating against another kind of trans person. And we forget about those kinds of trans people, the ones who are female and want to stay in women's sports. So it's discriminating even against another, a fellow trans person. And that's the, that's the point of this. It's not about trans or not trans. This document is a piece of crap. 
And we should never, the sport groups in Canada, whether it's Hockey Canada, figure skating, track, nobody should have been listening to these people. Because even what they were saying at the outset, if they were the anti-doping agency, what they were arguing was absolutely antithetical to their mandate. And why they still get government funding is beyond me. They should be defunded. This group is the, the source of all, it's the source of the wrecking ball on Canadian sport right now. So this dressing room stuff, everything, none of that would have happened if we hadn't listened to these people. That's what I'm here to tell you. And I mean, if you made me minister of sport for one day, I'd fire the lot of them and I'd defund them immediately. I just think the grown-ups need to get involved. Yes. And you've already said it on a local level how you can do it. But it's funny, Linda, like <clears throat> you're saying all these things and I'm going, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I go, it's not, uh, one of the things that I found fascinating about your book, <clears throat> I followed Jordan Peterson, not forever, but for a long enough time to know all about everything you talked about. And to be like, I remember thinking back then, geez, is it going to be that bad? And here we sit and it's only been how many years? And it's yep. it's pretty bad. Yep. And um, I go back, your your book outlines that this has been, this hasn't, this hasn't been um, the last year. Like this has been decades long. Yep. Cor- like. A slow ramp up now and, quick. And now quick. Like we're going down the, and everyone, you know, like where are all the people that, like, I, I always wonder, I'm like, where is all the people? You've been sitting in Edmonton. I had no idea you, you existed, know. you know? And I hear you, and I'm like, like, how do we have an expert of yeah. this magnitude where I basically just take a take a seat back and let you go for, yeah. for an hour? <laughs> and I'm like, this is fascinating. Yeah. Where has this been? Oh, wait, media is corrupted. Mm-hmm. All the big corporations are corrupted into this. Yep. When you talk about it being a religion, it is absolutely that. You poke your head up, you get it. I mean, we've watched everybody who's talked about it. Your book uh, lays it out very beautifully. Anytime somebody tried being like, no, this isn't right, boom, they're banished from a yeah. sport. They're removed from this. Yeah. They're taking... Um, and so this has been a war on people who talk openly about this. So yeah. now everybody knows the... the the, the, the painstaking effort, if you go or if you're going to stick your head up, yeah. you're going to be attacked uh, abruptly. Absolutely. And, and for most people, they will realize this from the last three years in COVID because the same thing happened with doctors and lawyers and professors and on and on and mm-hmm. on. If you poke your head up, the same thing has happened. So now everybody's like, oh. And mm-hmm. the, when I come to the hockey dressing room, because that is my world, yeah, I was just baffled at how many yeah. coaches I talked to. Well, we're just not going to implement it. I'm like, that's not the point. It's yeah. going to be in the law book for the next 20 years. And yeah. eventually it's going to get implemented. Yeah. And there's going to be lawsuits. And there are going uh, to be appeals. And it's like, what's happening to April Hutchinson right now? Yeah. It's like now bizarre. she's got like the two-year ban, like the two-year suspension for speaking out because she wrote her sport and said, I don't like that. There's a man competing against me, a male person who now sees himself as a woman. But it's not fair, you know. The bio, the body is still male. She she wrote privately to them back in January of this year. They ignored it. Every time she complained or pro- protested and said that she wanted an in, in uh, like uh, a, a disciplinary hearing on what should happen here, they didn't even bother to answer her email. 
But meanwhile, so when she gets she gets frustrated, she starts speaking out on social media because they're not responding to her inside yeah. the sport. And now she's getting a two year suspension because she violated the code of conduct because she wasn't being she wasn't allowed to be, you know, it was against the code to make us look bad and to speak about us and to speak about the guy. Like, okay, but then what about suspending that guy for for bad mouthing the women? He was insulting all the women. And, and taking away their prizes and their their like, no, they had to punish her because she she dared to speak out. You know, uh, we just in the United States, and they were asking about Canada, mm-hmm. and I think you're epitomizing where we're at. Oh, it is. This is exactly where we at. We're at, and I don't mind saying so. I, that's the problem. I I I for some reason I'm in a position where I can say it because I'm in an independent sport performance like if somebody fires me like let's say an athlete fires sure. me don't like your views and so they get rid of you next yeah like it it doesn't bother me well it's funny i'm an independent show yeah. where i'm like if i drop a sponsor because of this it's like well that sucks but i'm just like, gonna go find another, get another one, one. Yeah, probably yeah right so this is why we need you and me to have this conversation because so many people if, if you were let's say inside the university then you'd be going, oh, I might lose my job, or, you know, like it's it's just, um, there just is a way where there's some people have the the th- the enough independence to be able to say something, and so I I knew I noticed right away that I was I realized right away when this when I ran into this in 2018 that I was able. I can say something, and I will. Well, what's what's baffling to me is um, <clears throat> your pedigree. Yeah. Of like where, not only just you being a, an athlete, because <clears throat> yeah. I mean, there's a whole bunch of athletes. Right. I, I'm an athlete. Yeah. I mean, but your pedigree for where you've been, what you've done, and then being across a ton of sports. Yeah. So you get to get to work with men yes. and female, All or male time. and female All athletes. So you you have a pretty good sense of like, yeah. gee, like you know. Um, Male and females are a little bit different. They're different. Even before puberty, by the way. It's not good enough to say, oh, it's only, we only separate the sexes after puberty. Little girls don't want to compete with little boys. Sometimes we do if it's a fun recreational thing. But if it goes for serious prizes in sport, puberty only enhances, it magnifies the difference. But there are clear distinctions before puberty. And we could get into that too. But in my research... In all the papers I've read, you look at the like the Canada Fitness Test or like that. Like there is still little, little boys. It might be like let's say in running a three or four percent advantage, and then later after puberty, fifteen percent advantage. But in upper body, it can be as much as fifteen percent advantage even pre-puberty. So it's interesting the shoulder girdle, the way you leverage. The way boys' bodies can leverage and like, I got a daughter who's six. I got a son who's seven yeah. and a son who's four. Yeah. And when they wrestle, yeah, uh, she's a tough little girl. Yeah. I'm not knocking no, Mila. No, no, for sure. She's a tough little girl. Yeah. But the four-year-old already is a mean sob. Yeah. And he's built like a dump truck. Yeah. Like I don't like wrestling him. No. And yeah. he's four, and he's just built <laughs> d- physically That's what I'm different. You. It's like they are different, and and so don't insult little girls by saying, "Well, you're just going to have to put up with it until the boy goes into puberty." Like, and and then the question of that arises is like, okay, so children go into puberty at different ages. So how are you going to then pick where where that point is where you suddenly tell the the little boy you can't be with the girls anymore? You got to go like if we don't 
if we don't have a consistent sex-based policy from day one, yeah, it's a mess. You're asking way too much of sport officials to make that determination. What were you born at birth? That's the category you're in. Now we talk about your age category. And then if you're in a con- uh, combat sport, what is about your weight? Like we have very clear guidelines and they didn't need to be messed up this way. When you've done your research and dug into it, what do you think the 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 push for it to get mixed up? Because like, you know, there's just, to me, there just seems like there's common sense, right? It is. We you all go, know it. You go, okay, yeah, makes sense. Sex, yeah. da da You want everything to be inclusive. I get it. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, there's the, like this inclusive word is no, it's, it's been so commandeered. It's just like. Well, it's exclusive. See, this is the, yes. these people, the, the, the people who, who have, uh, and I'm just going to call it gender identity ideology. I don't know. I could say woke, but I mean, whatever this is, this new ideology on identities. I mean, it's basically, again, a denial that they, they go bending over backwards to deny that biological sex is real, even though you need to have a sex to transition. How can you transition if you didn't start with one thing and go to... So you you actually have to acknowledge <laughs> that there are... It's just like saying, like, there's North Pole and South Pole, but then now we're going to navigate the waters in between without trying to know where we started from. Like, anyway, the point is, this whole thing is to confuse children on their identities so that you can talk them into changing or whatever you want them to change to so why would you want that good question why would we want that why would we want to mess with children because that's the the uh trans ideology demands it because there's the whole thing started with white about three white billionaire males who identify as women they just wanted to put in the united nations yogi Carta principles oh yeah like gender identity has to be the main thing for human rights who are the, th- who are the three so there is like uh jennifer pritzker who's the head of uh there's a pritzker the uh i think it's they have pharmaceutical companies they're out of chicago okay uh john Stryker, um and martin Roth- rothblatt who was the guy who started sirius radio and all three of them are transgendered Women, like women, they, they identify as women. They they're born and, and born just so I have this clear. Born male, born male, and all three of these billionaires yeah. transitioned to female. And a lot of times it's a fetish because at that age when they transition, if you're a middle aged man, sometimes you watch too much porn and then you get like into sissy porn and then you just and, and just think I assume having that much money and yeah, and, and there's being... nothing else they want to have. And they uh, uh, there's a a blog called the Eleventh Hour Blog. And that, uh, my friend Jennifer Bielek, I mean, she's a colleague online. I've never met her in person, but she basically has covered, if you look up the 11th hour blog, you can see all about the money behind this movement. And the ultimate, her argument is that the ultimate, um, the ultimate goal is to um, get human beings to rethink their identities and their biology to the point where it's it's called transhumanism. So you can actually just replace body parts. So basically, you can implant a womb into a man so you can have a kid. Like, it's just, it's a bizarre ideology. It's, it's like- It's not bizarre. It's freaking insane. It's insane. And basically, so they're trying to, to teach children. Now it's got into our schools in the under the guise of SOGI 123 yes. curriculum. Uh, it's got it. They're indoctrinating people in our universities. Like if you say anything against it, you're a hate monger. Um, it, they've got they've captured pretty much the whole system, and they're trying. You know, in Canada, because we're so nice, we see ourselves as being nice. I think we were particularly vulnerable 
to this all ideology because we want to be nice. We just want to be nice to people. Like, I think, mean, why can't we let people live the way they want? Sure, but don't take our kids because that there's there's a kind of guy. It's like the AGP type of trans. So there's lots of different kinds of trans. But there's the middle aged man who probably got to watch too much porn or whatever, but gets turned on by seeing himself in the mirror as a woman. Like he's still heterosexual but then wants to dress up kind of like the woman, the prostitute of his dreams kind of thing. So that turns him on. So fine. But a lot of those kind of guys, including those billionaires, their idea was, it's too bad I had to wait till I was middle-aged to change, uh, to try to change my sex. Like instead of, like, you can't change your sex, but to ch- change how I, how the world sees me. Yes. So why not we, why don't we just indoctrinate kids from the beginning that you could be born in the wrong body and then you know that justifies all of what we're doing so i think it was something along those lines and they can't you know at once like a lot of people in that like as soon as you as soon as you transition like if if you tell a kid they might be born in the wrong body of course if you indoctrinate a kid and you make them confused they might say they might come to a teacher or something say i think i might be born in the wrong body send the teacher sends them to the well and then the teacher can't uh, can't tell the parent because, I mean, until they put in things in place, yeah. they're supposed to keep the secret because mm-hmm. the parent's not going to understand. Yeah. And so then the, then the kid then, but the, it's a racket because then a lot of schools, some of the schools, then they have a counselor. The counselor is all hepped up on gender ideology. So the kid, now we've got another one. Oh, yeah, we got a trans kid here. Yay, another trans kid. Well, then what happened to that one girl in Vancouver, 12-year-old? Then they send her right away to the gender doctor who then gives her a first shot of testosterone within the first hour of her first visit. I mean, cross-sex hormones. And you know what that's going to do? Because my PhD was in sexual dimorphism of kids and going through puberty. You do that, you've sterilized a kid for life. They don't know. Those kids don't know what they're signing up for. Because they're kids. Oh, my God. It's such a mess. And this is just the sport thing is one branch of it. And, of course, running into it with the sports thing then caused me to go down the rabbit hole into these other areas where it's going to be even worse, like men and women's prisons, kids in schools. Like, where does it stop? Can, can I, I, I want to I, I make sure that I ask about this. Sure. Uh, I, this, this was the um, – uh, I, I was like I read it and then I read it again. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I, I'm like, this is, this is like – Counter, not counterproductive, but like it's counterintuitive. It, yeah, thank you. Okay, um, it's it's uh, so once again uh, the book, f- folks. If you're like, holy man, I, I got to figure out where this Linda Blade is. Yeah. Unsporting how trans activism and science now are destroying sport, and I, I got it showing there on the screen uh, for the people watching. I wrote it with Barbara Kay, who's like the journalist, uh, a journalist in one of the top journalists in Canada. And it's uh, chapter seven is Olympic uh, capitulation, and uh, it's about Joanna uh, Harper. Harper. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm not going to read it through it all. I just I, I, I highlighted this one um, paragraph, and it said, "Under these rules, in other words, a female Olympian could now be required to contend with a born male competitor who enjoys a host of advantages on a structural level. But if the female athlete were to take t- testosterone supplements simply to bring her levels up to those allowed in a self self-identifying male athlete, she'd be the one disqualified for doping. So in order for um, a, a trans, uh, like a guy, who, I, this is where I get. So just this say is a I man hate. who identifies as a woman. Thank you. A man who identifies as a woman has to get down to a certain level. 
According to the International Olympic Committee, yeah. But that's higher than what females yes. actually have. Yes. So if they, so, to make it fair, you would be like, well, then I guess women can at least mm-hmm. go up to that level. Yeah. But if they do that, they, they get, get booted for doping. Yes. You know how insane that is when it's put <laughs> out like that? I'm just like, <laughs> you can't, you can't be that dumb. That's it. You can't be that dumb. But they are like all these sports guys are just going like. Eh, okay, we're gonna pass this policy. We won't. We won't ask these questions. And it's even worse than that. We won't even bring the experts in to have the debate. Yeah. You know the the monk debate you were on. Yeah. Was um. You know I. I that was get... with the same Joanna Harper, by the way. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And I I realized that. Yeah. Um, it was fascinating to me. Um, one of the things I've always said is we 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 lack debate in our society. Mm-hmm. Like in the middle of COVID, I was uh, one of the things I wanted to see is I was like, why not just as a government televise a group of you can have people from all different aspects, scientists and and lawyers and profe- but get intelligent people like the monk debates have done, yeah. but televise it for people right. so then we can like come to consensus and yeah. stop yelling at each other and, and wanting to punch each other and and ex- discriminate and remove and everything else and blah 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 blah. And this, uh, what the monk debate uh, did with you two, um, was like really like, oh, this is like, it's not perfect, but dang, it's better than anything yeah. I've I've experienced in society, and like, and yet, we've silenced the critic of what's going on in our in our world. Yeah. Oh, you know, like what do they say? Oh, you're being, being well, mean. You're being mean. Be, being unnatural. Being mean, or, or or you know, like you're being. You, you, you tell this. You tell you tell the story of rugby, yeah. uh, international rugby. I think yeah. it is. Yeah. Coming down and saying, oh, we did this. You know, we looked into it, and men born by biological men aren't going to compete against women. And then everybody else came out and just slammed them. Media, everything. Yeah. And that's our world today. Yeah. And and yet, the rugby people know. That to have one male person on the on the pitch during a women's either practice or a competition rugby game match uh, raises the possibility of of a female athlete having serious neck, back, brain injury raises that thirty at least thirty percent or more. Somebody's gonna die, Sean. Somebody's gonna die before this gets sorted. I'm worried about that. Because like you saw what happened with Fallon Fox. I don't know if you ever heard of that guy, Fallon Fox, but he was an MMA fighter back as early as 2014, believe it or not. But he got into the ring. He identifies as a woman. He ex-military. Uh, military does this a lot to people too. I don't know. I think their brains get broken and then they, oh, I'm going to identify as a woman. But anyway, comes into a woman's uh, MMA match and a, a female fighter named Tamika Brents gets in this, the ring, she's completely clueless, had no idea she was going to be fighting, because like, Fallon Fox sounds like a, you know, it's a weird name, but they always have these weird names, but it's, it's, she thought she was going to fight a woman. So she comes into the ring, all of a sudden, this person who looks like a woman starts pounding on her, and she feels the strength, like it's completely different than than fighting another woman, and before she knows it, it's like, you know, pit bull hit her, like, you know, she's got a, a, broke, a crushed orbital, like eye socket, uh, cracked skull, seven, seven, seven stitches, seven staples in her head because it, it broke her, her head right, right open. And, you know, it, uh, then after a while, like, okay, this came out online. It was Joe Rogan even talked about it. And then later Fallon Fox said, yeah, he, he really enjoyed that. He enjoyed 
beating up a woman like that. And when I found uh, your your debate on the monk deba- the, the monk debate yeah. very interesting because when you brought that up, uh, Joanna jo- Harper, the she guy. was like, "Well, I mean, it wasn't that bad, and it was only a fractured skull." And I'm like, "Only like, it's like come I'm, on, come come on, come on, yeah." And I mean, this is what they do: they downplay all of the ways in which it discriminates and harms women. And and here's the thing, you know, you're worried about, um, uh, let's just take it, a UFC, somebody dying in the yeah. ring, a man yeah, versus a yeah. woman. I look at it and I go, look at all the kids that are being ir- just irreversible. You can't, like, once you go yeah. down this road, no, there's no coming back. That's the worst. Like, for me, sport is one thing that's very important to me in my life. Obviously, it's been my life. Yeah. But, I mean, like, when I went down and realized it was happening in prisons and happening in schools and happening to young children, and I'm like... That is way worse. Like, if you're going to, like, you know, when it's so ironic, Sean, because my first year when we moved back to Edmonton from West Africa, uh, af- after we moved back to Canada, um, there was an article in the Edmonton Journal about, um, uh, now I'm going to forget her name, Lilani Muir, who was the last surviving um person who had undertaken you know in Alberta we had this terrible terrible policy from like 1928 where it was like you could it was a eugenics movement you could uh castrate uh you could sterilize children who were low IQ so a lot of kids who were were uh so it was a terrible thing it's a it's a black mark on Alberta history that we had for uh, about a 30 I think it was 40 year period of time that we were going to foster homes or uh, children in, men, in institutions, whatever, if they were deemed to be low IQ, and of course a lot of them were, uh, you know, First Nations, which is awful as well. But Lilani Muir was one of those. She got caught. She was a she was a foster kid. She probably had a normal IQ, but she appeared as like she didn't go to school, and I don't know what happened. She was an underprivileged kid, so they they basically um, sterilized her. And by 1995, when I had moved in, because I was never, I wasn't born and raised in Alberta, so I read in the newspaper her horrific story about how all these kids were being, under the guise of eugenics, all these kids were being sterilized in Alberta, and she was the last surviving, uh, she was she was taking the, the province to court. She got a $350,000 settlement. Good for her. I mean, you know, we did this to her. Uh, and then... Um, so when I was looking, when this started happening, I became aware of the kids transitioning. And I know in my heart, from my expertise and my PhD work, that you're going to give the wrong hormone to a kid during puberty, you are going to disrupt their ability, their fertility. And and the possibility, especially if once they go down the route of like young girls wanting to go and get the surgery and getting hysterectomy and, and all yeah, that. Like, uh, I mean, so basically my, I was looking at the numbers that I could find because in Canada, you're not even allowed to talk about it half the time. So we don't really know the true numbers, but I can say this 40 years of, of Alberta eugenics caused about 3000 kids to be ster- like people to be sterilized, not just kids, but adults and sure. children. Okay. 3000. In the first five years of this ideology, there's been at least that many sterilized. And we aren't even talking about it. And you know what the, the silly thing is? We, we talk about, you know, like we, we make a big deal about, um, like Trudeau did, about like, oh, maybe there was some bodies buried in um, Kamloops and like the 200 kids and what happened to them. And we still don't have bodies that have been dug up. But let's say that's true. Like, it's horrific. We're talking about kids, native kids from before 
being maltreated and sterilized and, and, under, and treated poorly while the same government is doing it to kids right now and we're not even talking about it. Yes, and a lot of them are native because a lot of uh, it happens four times more to the kids who are in foster care, which happen to be sometimes First Nations. So why are we talking about something that was horrific that happened in residential schools, which is bad? I mean, we could talk about that. But why at the same time that we're doing it twice as poor, badly, we're treating kids right today, 2023. This is happening in Canada. And we're somehow not allowed to talk about it, but we're allowed to say, oh, oh, all this, you know, we were so bad. Like, look what happened in the residential school. Like this, this level of, it, it's just, it's just terrible. I want to say the word evil, you know, it sounds you religious. Can, uh, it, that's, but here's the thing. It is freaking evil. Like, I don't know how you can sit there and go down this road with, you know, like I always go. You want to be 19 uh, in Saskatchewan, 18 in, in Alberta, you know, and you right. want to go make these choices? Linda, you're you're an yeah, adult. Well, you what, what am I going to do? You know, eventually you get to go. But, you know, when we're talking about, we're, not talk, we're talking about 12-year-olds. We're yeah. talking about like crazy stuff. Yeah. Like where it makes zero sense. No. And we're coddling that in sport now with our dressing rooms. And our yes. Room. Like, let's just, where are we going to stop? When are we going to stop and say enough? That's enough. Well, I think, you know, with the, the One Million March for Children that yeah, happened. Yeah, that, that happened. You know, I think it was pretty evident that there's a lot of parents from all different walks of life, all different skin colors, all different ethnic backgrounds, et cetera, et cetera. And they all just got together and said, this is ridiculous. No more of this. Yep. And what did, the, you know, what did the government do? I mean, half of it protested with the LGBTQ2SLI+. Yeah. Yeah. The other half, the conservatives, this is where I'm like, hmm. They said, go dark on this and don't say anything. Yeah, they're worried about the reputations. Yes. But, you and, know, and that's because we're still, the, the public is not educated, so they're going to think, oh, you're just far right. No, you're not. All of these people, <laughs> all of us who, you know, we're well, all over the spectrum. I can tell you there's women's groups all over that we're, we're, I'm meeting with, and most of them are radical feminists and people from all over the spectrum who really care about this. This is terrible what's happening to our young people. It's terrible what's happening to our society. And it's not far right. It is absolutely the broad spectrum of normal-minded people in Canada who don't like what's going on. Yeah, it's um, right in the middle, I think. I think it's, it's right in the as, middle. I think it's pretty normal to be it talking about protecting children. Because there are children. Like, it's okay, it's fine and dandy for that group to want to take our kids because they obviously can't have them anymore, so then they're going to want ours. Like, I I'm telling you, it's just got to stop. It's ridiculous. I won't mince words. It's got to stop. Well, the, the thing that I've, I've stared at through COVID and now into this is there has been a rise of independent media because mm -hmm. everyone's been going, where is the dialogue on this? Mm -hmm. And now you can find more and more and more mm -hmm. of it. I'm not saying it's perfect, no. but you can find more. Yeah. But for too long, I mean, the, the CBC, the CTV, the global, yeah. the on and on and on, the mainstream yeah. has been the voice in Canada where you could find out information. And yeah. you, we've been known for a while well, now that something, something's missing. Oh, they're totally extremely biased. biased. Yeah. And now you have the, the things coming down with 
trying to get, uh, you know, like we've seen it play out on, on Meta and, and now possibly Google. And now you get the CRTC trying to get all these podcasts to, to register and on and on it goes. And you're like, well, where does that lead? Well, it leads to them, nobody being able to talk about. So we're in a race. We're in yes, a race. We are in a race. Because. That's exactly what we, I'm trying to. Yeah. Because people like you, you better hurry up and say it before you're not allowed to say it anymore. And if we have enough people like you and me and everybody else that I know of in in my circles, if we have enough of us starting to talk about it and say it, there will be enough people who understand that we have to change the laws, the, the bylaws, because it's it's happening now. Now, if we even change Bill C-16, it's not enough because it's wormed its way into the provincial yeah. human rights codes. It's wormed its way into city bylaws. And so we're going to have to change city bylaws, provincial uh, human rights rules, federal rules and go back and now with my international uh, affiliations that I've developed we're going to go after the Yogyakarta principles that put them into the UN to begin with it's it started it's in the UN it's local it's everywhere somewhere we got to change it all at once again and that's take that's a heavy lifting that's and you know heavy what you lifting. know and you know what I hate most about politicians yeah is when you bring up something like this they'll go well that's a federal thing yeah, they'll just pass they'll, the buck. They'll pass the buck. But and that's what, yeah, that's what the IOC said too. Like when they finally push came to shove after the 2021 Olympics, when Laurel Hubbard was lifting weights with the women, and of course the world got to see a man lifting weights with the women. Oh, oh yeah, I guess our uh, 2015 inclusion on the testosterone level, I guess that was a little bit not fit for purpose. So they went back and they brought in a new set in 2021 in the fall. That was the very same month that also Leah Thomas came up in the NCAA. But anyway, that the um, then they just punted because in between that time, between the Olympic Games, so it was like the three intervening months, July ended and they started the consultation on the next transgender policy. We wrote because now we had an international women's group that were like from women's activists from all different countries in the world wrote letters. There's a lady from Australia, Catherine Deves, who wrote a letter. She's a lawyer wrote a letter to the IOC, said, this time can we have women sitting at the table to tell our point of view and have an input into your policy, the IOC policy. They wrote back, nope, we've already consulted with people like you. And meanwhile, we could we could see people like Rachel McKinnon, Joanna Harper, they were all at the table. So all the trans activists come back to the table to try to spin another tale and they leave women out again on the discussion, they did not consult with what women. What a frustrating thing. And then in by by November of 2021, the new IOC policy is, oh, no, we'll just leave it up to each individual sport governing body. They don't want to make a decision. Yeah, pass the buck. Yeah, that's what they did. They're cowards. They created the problem in the first place, and then they passed the buck to the individual sport. And that's why we're in a situation in 2023 where every single sport in the world has a different policy about this. And then you have like April Hutchinson, she gets caught because she's in this, the Canadian Powerlifting Union, doesn't follow what the International Powerlifting Union says. Like it just keeps going on and on. Like they just, it's a mess right now because the IOC passed the buck. They don't want to put their foot down and say, no, we're going to go back to sex-based guidelines. And because of Joanna Harper and people like that who have a seat at the IOC Medical Commission. That's why we're in this mess. It all comes from there. So... It's frustrating, but I'm telling you, the more times we can have these conversations, Sean. Well, one one of the things that I love is that I found another like I uh, so I started this podcast yeah. in 2019. Okay. 
And um, certainly it's had its ebbs and flows, if you would. Right. And, you know, like, um, you know, at the beginning it was it was, it was was getting to the level of like Don Cherry and Ron McLean and having some, some interesting people on. Sure. And then, you know, Glenn, the oiler side of it, having yeah. Glenn Sather on. Nice. And then in the middle of COVID, I mean, I went off the deep end and I've yeah. had everything. Doctors, lawyers, I've been, nice. you know, shut off of YouTube and oh, a whole bunch wow. of different things. But I'm like, something is drastically wrong here. Yeah. And the thing is, is once you start pulling on one thread, uh, thread then you start to see like 10 other threads. And you're like, what are we doing? Yeah. And, um, you know, like it's led me to this topic over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. And the thing that gives me a lot of hope is I keep finding people such as yourself that I'm like, how how have you been sitting there? And I didn't know. I mean, obviously in Canada, I, I quite understand. Yeah. Uh, there's these echo, not echo, these uh, chambers where they put us into. Yeah. And then if you haven't, yeah. if you haven't found a way to get out of it, like yeah. if you only stick to mainstream, yeah. mainstream ain't in, in interviewing Linda, and mainstream certainly interviewing, interviewing Sean. Yeah. You know. And so you go, well, here we are. We yeah. somehow found a way to find each other. And I'm find like, there's a, April. Ton, <laughs> there's, a, there's a ton of Canadians. So that, many that are that are like badass yeah and have a ton of knowledge yeah. such as yourself and i'm like oh my god this is this is pretty cool like i can't yeah. believe i hear i sit yeah into the 500 episodes still finding canadians that are completely badass and are like speaking openly because i'm just like where is it like i yeah. don't i don't get it yeah like we're, we're out there but they f- had a really good way of shutting people down of d- stifling uh the voices it's it's about to break open i think i think the dominoes are st- just teetering. I think, I think there's going to be this wholesale like collapse all of a sudden. There's just going to be. I think. I think there's just going to be the ideology just cannot withstand. A lie cannot stand. You cannot keep lying to people, and think that it's going to still. You can keep shutting people up and and shutting down their conversations. You can't. It's going to come up. And people care about their sports. Parents care about their hockey. Parents care about their gymnastics, their girls. I mean, come on. Like, we care about our kids. Like, you know, at some point, you have to stop treating it like, oh, we're being all hateful to this microscopic percentage of people who might have a psychological problem as if we all have to buy in and pretend like we all have the same problem. Yeah, like the emperor has no pants. Yeah. Right? I mean, at some point, you have to call a spade a spade. Like, listen... I mean, if we didn't have biological sex, we wouldn't have food, <laughs> right? Like, I mean, <laughs> I just, I just laugh about it. Coming from the farm, it's yeah. like, you know, it's like, so the bull wants to be a cow. How's that yeah, going to go? Like, you that's know? not going to go. That's and not that, like that. That isn't the way biology works. No. And I don't have a a, a background in biology. No, but just you don't need from the it. Farm, you don't need it. It's like, <laughs> folks, we don't need it. Like, like that's get, the irony of all this. I have all this experience. I have a PhD. I had all this stuff. Would I have needed any of that to really just say what I said today? I guess in terms of the journey, but. Well, I just look at you and I think you're so beautifully positioned to talk from this spot, uh, talk about this from a position of authority because your life has built up to like this moment where you're like, what is going on? You know, I've had very few times where I felt really compelled to speak. And the time it was is when they came out and Hockey Canada said, you know, kids aren't going to be allowed to take off, you know, their undergear in a hockey dressing room or shower or anything. Yeah. And I'm like, that's what coach asked for that? I can't think of a no single... No coach would have. And that's the point. Like, they finally come to a point because their ideology is so ridiculous 
you finally get to a point where you have to instantiate some sort of policy that is so bizarre and makes no sense. And then it wakes everybody up and says like, whoa, okay, how did that happen? And here we are, right? And it's- I can't, I can't find a single coach that is actually doing what the policy says. Like there, none, none of them, good. none of they them shouldn't. are, none of them of, I haven't, I haven't found a single one that's like, oh, this is a good idea. Not a single one. Right. I found one that was kind of like, huh, I wonder if it was put in place because of all the different, uh, the diversity of people that are starting to play hockey and maybe there's something there with, and I'm like, yeah, but like you can still, no. the one person can go get changed in the, in a different, in third, a, yeah, third. or in, in the, in the bathroom, right? Yeah, like, like in the, in the handicap or the single stall bathroom. Correct. So it wasn't supposed, it would, ne- it never had to be an issue. They're making it an issue because they keep wanting to push this in our faces. Yes. And like I say, do they really think, really seriously, do they really think that they could keep doing this? And to people in sports, especially, because we're fighters, like we, 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 we fight, we, we, we disagree, we, uh, we contest, we, that's the whole point, sport, you're rivals and you uh, compete. Well, they, we compete with our ideas too, right? So like, why did they think they could push this into the sports realm and somehow everybody would just be, oh, okay, okay, I guess we'll do it, okay. No, that's not what we're like in sports. But somebody told me something interesting, though, and they said, no, it was a gambit. If you can get people, the most obvious place in life where this was going to come to a head was sports. If you can make the ideology work, if you can bully people to do this in sports, you've got the whole country. You've got the whole everything mm. else. Because sports, it's the most vulnerable for them that, to show their insanity. Well, and, and it makes and it, it and it visually to us yeah, all makes oh, yeah. zero sense. Zero, zero. So if you can make if you can bully and and intimidate people in 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 the sport world to accept this, then you've won. And they're not going to win, at least not on my watch. Like. I won't let that. I mean, I'm going to keep saying what I'm saying. I'm probably going to write another book, but we're going to keep saying what we well, say. Well, and what we're going to do here on the podcast is we're going to have you back on. Like, Good. I mean, okay. Um, you don't have to worry about that. Now that yeah. we found you, I'm like, well, I'm going. This is way too easy to have a wealth <laughs> of knowledge sitting uh, this close to yeah. the studio. You know? Yeah. Like, uh, I just. Well, I'm happy to be on. I mean, it's. Listen, thank you for the interview because I feel like there's very few people who are like you, Sean, who are willing to just let people talk and speak and say what they say because, you know, and everything else, we're supposed to be careful about what word you use, you're looking over your shoulder, or you're humming and hawing, like, yeah, it's crazy. So it's, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a delight to be able to sit with you and just have a conversation like two normal Canadians. And... <laughs> And there we are. <laughs> you know, if I was 10 years ago thinking a normal conversation would be saying that a man is a man and a woman is a woman, yeah, I, I don't think it. I could, I don't think I could have fathomed it, but I do run into people all the time that could see this coming. Yeah. Um, you know, like I think, it, is it as early as 2003 in your book? Yes. Uh, that Well, the first 2003 was when the Olympics, well, basically 1999, the Olympic Committee decided to stop doing the sex testing so you can do the sex verification test which is simple it's just like take your pen like a q-tip take a like a cheek swab 
put it in a test tube. You got some cells in there to see right away, like male or female. Yeah. Would have been so easy to keep doing that. They decided, oh, no, it's socially going to make some people feel awkward. Yeah, it would make them feel awkward if they're lying about their sex. Yeah. So, and and, and then, so they basically then stopped. (laughs) That's a great chapter because you go through how they tried to yeah, like how they things. all the different things to so in the olympics folks they've been trying to make sure that women are women yeah, for a very long time, long time to the point of like walking them through all naked yeah there was and like a there was can, like can the you, naked parade like can it, you imagine being a, you know like i want no wonder that got shut down yeah well that got shut down after the first time I, sean that wasn't could you sit and watch all the naked <laughs> women walk through all these athletes that and make was, sure they're women and it's like um Sure, I guess, right? Like you right. can just imagine. That happened in the 1960s. But you know the truth is that the the activists will use that moment to say that's why it was inhuman to do your sex verification on women. Like it's so disingenuous. We had a way during the time I was competing, I had a number of those done. Like it was no big deal. Yeah. That was easier to do the sex verification cheek swab with a Q-tip than going in and having a nurse watch you pee because Russian women would bring in pig bladders full of somebody else's urine to drop into the pee cup. And so now, because of that's, that cheating, they had to bring in a person who could who had to literally be in the stall with you watching you pee. Have you ever tried to pee? Okay, you're already, you're already dehydrated because you've been competing for all day long in a hot sun. Now you have no, like, no fluid in your body. And now you're trying to pee, and there's somebody squatting down watching to make sure it's coming out of your, uh, your body. <laughs> like... That is worse, <laughs> way worse than having a cheek swab. So don't tell me sex verification was dehumanizing women and then you make your athletes still do the pee test. Like it just, the whole thing is dis- disingenuous. So for them to stop the ve- sex verification test and then the, by 2003, they said, oh no, we'll let guys come in as long as they ha- were castrated and had lived as a woman for three years and blah, blah, blah. And then... By 2015, oh, that's way too hard. We'll just let them reduce their testosterone to levels higher than women. And then, like, it's just the whole thing has been a huge gaslighting, 30 years of gaslighting women, basically, with 20 years at least. So, and come on, like, they have been the most cowardly, corrupt group of people ever, the International Olympic Committee. Joe Rogan just thinks they're gross anyway. Like like the Olympics, like at least in MMA fights and stuff, you pay the athletes. The Olympic, the Olympics never have to pay their athletes, never have to acknowledge anything. Like they just take the billion dollars and walk away to the next Olympic Games. Like it's corrupt. It's, they, they are just like, they act like they don't have to account uh, to anybody. There's something going to happen that it's either going to be restructured again. Like, I think we're heading into a time, whether it's in Canada, internationally. People have had it. Like, we need to start doing something different. There's going to be a pivot point somewhere. Because what they're doing right now is not acceptable. It's not. So, you know, there's a lot that needs to change in the Olympic movement. But what they've done to women in terms of the categorical thing is, is beyond it's beyond. I don't know. Well, I, I appreciate you coming in and doing this um, yeah. uh, and making the drive. Uh, I'm going to hold you for a couple extra minutes because we're going to flip over to Substack. So I sure. know uh, for the people uh, watching on 
all the different apps. Uh, if you want to catch the the rest or the the bonus ten minutes, uh, yeah. hop over to Substack. But I appreciate yeah. you making the the drive oh, here and doing this. You. This has yeah, been um, fun. <laughs> you know, when I earmarked this day, I was like, um, like I hadn't really listened to you that yeah. much. And even in the monk debates, I yeah. feel like you're pretty uh, reserved. I was. I want. I wanted to be respectful, but yeah. man, like, yeah. But no. uh, you let know, let me loose. Uh, yeah, let let Linda loose. You know, like <laughs> here we go. You know. But I appreciate you making the drive and doing this. Thank you.